are listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Everyone else, please open up your Bible with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. We're in a series called Chosen Sojourners, and this is, a, this is a letter that Peter wrote to a group of Christians who were feeling the pressure and even persecution from the culture around them. And as we've established in the first three messages of this series so far, as we've been going through this, I would say that if you are walking with Jesus, living for Jesus right now, in 2022, you're actually in a very similar position as these Christians were. Um, we don't always think through it that way, but I really believe it's true. Let's say you are a, a parent and you're trying to raise up your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You really have this desire to teach your kids the difference between good and evil, to point them to Christ. Maybe you want to be a homemaker and invest in your family uh, rather than run the rat race of endless activities and, and busyness. Well, if that's you in this world today, you're going to get looked down at. You're going to get scoffed at by some people. If you're single and you're trying to find a life's partner, you're trying to date someone who loves Jesus and desires to be sober-minded and wants to give their life for the glory of God, well, you're also going to feel pressure to, to conform and to give up and, and to just follow your passions like everyone else seemingly around you. If you're doing your best to run a business and to, to do a good work or a service that benefits others and that promotes, promotes the good in our communities, even that can be challenging in today's culture. It's challenging for a variety of reasons, but not many people are running their business like a ministry where they can, they can point people to the love of God. And there's all these other complicating factors. At the same time, there's attack on, on truth in our society. So you have pressure to follow a specific code that may or may not go against your conscience. And if you, have, if you have this pressure to follow the crowd, if you're not saying all the right things and, and you know, dotting your I's and crossing your T's the same compulsory way, well, then you are also going to feel it. So for all of you out there, Peter has three themes. And he never stops weaving these three themes in and out of this letter of 1 Peter. The first one is living hope. Jesus Christ is our living hope. The second one is present suffering. While we're down here in this life, in this present earth, we're going to feel pressure. We're going to have trials. And then third theme that he keeps pointing to is our future glory. That if we know Jesus Christ, we have hope and we have a better place that we're going to. So this week, we're picking up exactly where we left off a couple weeks ago. And you can trace this all the way back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. If you remember that verse, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what Peter wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to these elect exiles, as we saw in verse 1, is the exact same message for all of you. All of you who know Jesus. All of you chosen sojourners. Life isn't a game. We are messengers of Jesus Christ, our living hope, and we have a mission. And that's to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And so underlying all of this present suffering is this truth that setting your hope on the grace that will be given to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that needs to be the driving undercurrent of your life, of your daily life. Your future glory through Christ must inform your daily decisions. And your living hope in Jesus Christ must absolutely propel and drive your passions. So as we've been walking through this text, if you've been with us, you know, like I said, for for more than one of these first three weeks, you will notice that it is these same three points over and over again. And that's how Peter makes his point. He's like one of those teachers that just has one thing to say, right? And they say it like four or five different ways in the, in the period of the 60-minute the class hour you know, or the 50-minute class hour, whatever it is. You know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like master class teaching because it can get really boring if you're not doing it well. But Peter is crushing it right now, and he keeps saying these three things over and over again. So here's where we're at. I'll show you the outline. I've had to remake this outline so many times in this series. I keep thinking I'm going to cover more verses, and then I just get stuck on, on one or two verses. So we're going through this a little slower than I had planned, which is totally fine. But if you can see, we're on point six right now of ever since we started really in verse, verse 13, verse 14 of chapter one. It just keeps going. There's no end in sight. But today is about opening your heart to Christ. How do you prepare your mind for action and set your hope fully on the grace that will be given to you? This morning, that question is going to be specifically answered by looking at what it is to become a people of his own possession. That's where verse 9 ends. That's where we're going with all of this. To be a people of his own possession. We're going to look at the text in a minute, but before we even get there, just by saying that phrase, I know I'm probably rustling some feathers. And there's some people that are probably like, huh, do I, do I really want that? Maybe you're not going to say that out loud, but you're thinking that. This doesn't sound appealing to a person who just wants to live their life, to be a people of his own possession. Maybe being possessed by someone else doesn't sound great to you. Maybe you want to do it my way, or you want to be the boss. I want to be the captain of my own ship. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. I think we've all been there. If you're not there right now, we've all at least been there at some point in our life. So as a matter of fact, becoming a person of his own possession is completely the opposite of the message that we hear from the world that we live in. We hear follow your instincts, trust your heart. If it feels good, do it. And there's no place for God to rule and reign in your heart with that mindset. So if that's the way you think, please buckle up today because you don't have the correct view of yourself and you don't have the correct view of God. And that's what Peter's going to be talking about here. 
And I dare say it's not just unbelievers who think this way. Even Christians can slip into this mindset without realizing it. This independent, be myself, I'm the captain of my own ship mentality. And I, I didn't even have this illustration until, until very recently, but I was on social media this week and I came across uh, one of my old friends, one of my old friends from college, who made a post on social media. And he was talking about how he had been a pastor for, for eight years. And now, you know, th during those entire time that he was a pastor, he was against homosexuality. But now he's changed his mind. And I'll just, I'll just tell you what he said here, because this gets to the heart of where we're going. He said, there's a lot of people like me who would like to believe a more affirming truth about gay people. But you feel trapped by what the Bible says. Now, there are good biblical reasons for being affirming, but I want you to know that you were allowed to change your mind without an airtight biblical argument. Some of us think it's, it's unfaithful as Christians, but it's actually not unfaithful to reinterpret scripture in light of your moral intuition and experience. This is what we did with circumcision, slavery, and women's rights. You were allowed to trust the sense that your own moral judgment gives you that being queer is another beautiful, diverse expression of God's creation, end quote. So there's a lot wrong with that. A lot wrong with that. Um, I don't even have time to get into all of it today. But at the heart of it all, not only is it someone who doesn't have the right view of Scripture, you know, we're, we're not to just conform Scripture to our own emotions, to our own in, intuitions and feelings. No, that's not right, because your own intuitions can be fallen. They can be wrong, right? We aren't allowed to reinterpret Scripture to do that. And the church also hasn't changed their positions on circumcision, slavery, or women's rights. None of that's ever changed. That's someone who's hearing the narrative of the world, and then they're twisting Scripture to fit that because they've listened to that more than they listen to the truth of God's Word. But we're talking today about your identity. And I went there with that illustration. I almost didn't do it because I want you to show the stakes of how high this is. If you don't have this right, that's the thinking that you're led to. Okay? This is very important to think about who owns you. Is it just me? Am I the king? Do I make all the decisions? Am I making myself God? Or is there someone greater than I who knows me and who loves me? Are you okay with being different and standing out? Being a people of his own possession? Whether you want to admit it or not, no one was designed to be fully independent. You're always going to be dependent on others. And furthermore, the most gracious, forgiving, and freeing person you could ever live for is not yourself. It's the one who created you and sacrificed everything for you. It's, not even, it's definitely not some man-made idea. The most freeing and empowering person you could ever live for and could be, be completely sold out for is your creator. He went to the cross for you. And he made you new. So becoming a person of his own possession may not sound great in a vacuum if you don't know him. But if you don't know, you don't know. And today we're going to see him. We're going to see exactly how the anxiety can be lifted and how you can actually be free to be who you were created to be. That's where all of this is going.
So let's go to the text so you can see it for yourself. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We're going to stop right there this week and we're going to pick up the rest of that verse next week. The first point here today is simply open your hearts to Christ. You personally open your heart to Christ. And I would like to just make an observation here before we get too deep into this because there is a lot here to go through. But an observation, when you open your heart to Christ and come to Him, Jesus makes you the best version of yourself. <laughs> Bad ringtones and all, Jesus makes you the best version of yourself. Just kidding. But let's think about it. Here's big old Peter, right? The rough, tough fisherman. He's, in a way, Peter is, he's Galilean. He's kind of like the redneck of, of the Israelites. You know, those, those, those Galileans, they're the fishermen. They're, they're up there in the, in the country area. They're not from the city. Um, but he's, he's rough. He's as tough as nails. And he's ready for anything. We saw this on Good Friday, right? Peter is ready. He's ready to fight. He's going to pull the sword out. He's going he's gonna to swing vigorously and, and chop off somebody's ear. That's the kind of guy Peter was, always putting his foot in his mouth. But we all know this type. I mean, he's a man's man. Now, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when Peter has seen his Savior defeat death and come alive, and after Peter's been restored by Jesus Christ, and his denial and his failure has been forgiven and put away, Peter is now a new person. He's, he has renewed boldness and purpose. You know, Peter, at this point, when he's writing this letter, he's been in and out of prison preaching about the resurrected Jesus Christ. And he's the leader of the church. And now, this big, tough guy, if you read this letter closely, one of his favorite words is precious. In verse 4, he's talking about God's people. As you come to him, in the sight of God, you are chosen and precious. He uses that word again in chapter 1, verse 19. You were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Peter uses this word precious five times in this letter, another couple times in 2 Peter. It's a pretty big, that's a pretty, pretty much a lot of times to use that word for a big tough guy, don't you think? He uses the word precious an awful lot, and I just think for Peter, that's precious. <laughs> that's precious. You can take it however you want, 
uh, however you want to see this. This is just an observation. But there's something about opening up your heart to Jesus Christ that chisels away the old rough facade and turns this macho man into a strong and gracious man. And we're not talking about somebody being emasculated. And I'm not talking about him turning into a wimp. Of course not. There's a difference, though, between being a chest-thumping person full of bravado that's all flash and no depth and someone who has mature masculinity that is wise and under control, strength with humility. That's meekness. And men like that can't help but gush about their sacrificial Savior, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And the more you focus on what your Savior did for you, the more you turn into a man or a woman who sacrifice and leads like Jesus. So I love the way God turns a cursing sailor into a loving father. It's a beautiful thing. And all throughout this letter, we hear people uh, we, excuse me, we hear Peter talking like he's putting on a bow on his little girl's ha- in his little girl's hair, talking about the preciousness of the gospel. You are never going to realize your full potential if you're holding on to your way. Peter became a better man. He became the best version of himself once he was fully restored and once he received meekness. So no matter how talented you are, if your life is about you and your dreams, you're missing your true identity that we just saw here, specifically pointed out in verse 9. So back to verse 4, though, as we start working through this. It says, so come to him. He is the living stone. Jesus Christ is the living stone rejected by men. Jesus was lied about, he was scoffed at, he was tortured, he was crucified, and more on that to come. But we don't see him like that anymore. He went through that because of you and for you, and he rose again. And now he's our living hope. In the sight of God, chosen and precious. Look there at verse 5. What is the next thing that happens when you open your heart to Jesus Christ. So you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to get this right here, be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So this is where the theology buffs and the Bible geeks, geeks in these next few verses, we could camp out here an awful long time because this goes really deep. We're going to do a quick survey through this, but this really highlights the unity and the tightness of Scripture. Peter has a very deep understanding of the Old Covenant, which we see in the Old Testament. And the New Covenant, which we are enjoying right now, which we are living in right now, is really like color on the page. But a lot of times, you, you can't really fully grasp all the color that is in the New Testament that we see right here until you go back to the Old Testament and the Old Covenant because it really provides the structure. It's like the outline to where you know where to fill in all with your crayons all the color and the beautiful picture. The structure does come from the Old Testament. And Peter actually quotes Psalm 118 here. And as a matter of fact... There's a lot in this outline that I want you to see. 
So I want to just go on a quick field trip through some passages in the Old Testament that talk about Jesus being the rock of your salvation. He is the rock. And he's the living stone. And of all the many names of God, Jesus being your rock of salvation is one of the very best. You see it in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, the Song of Moses. God is referred to there as a rock. One of, one of the most unique ones and one of my favorites is Daniel chapter 2. And there's this really wild dream with King Nebuchadnezzar, okay? He had just been restored back to, back to his, his full capacity of his mind. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has this wild dream where he sees all of the kingdoms of mankind in this one giant image. This is Daniel chapter 2. You can go back and read this at some point in time. But he sees um, this head of gold, which represented the Babylonian kingdom. And then he saw a chest of silver, which was the Medo-Persian kingdom. And then there was a, uh, I want to make sure I get this right, uh, bronze thighs, which was the Greek empire, and then iron legs, which is the Roman empire. And below all of that was this iron mixed with clay, the feet with the ten toes, which were the ten, you know, ten kingdoms of ten other nations that were mixed with iron and clay. And in his dream, with man, mankind, humanity's kingdoms, there was this, this rock that was not cut with man's hands. And he saw this image of this rock coming out of nowhere, crashing into this giant statue with all these precious metals. And this rock that was not cut with man's hands just destroyed the entire thing and it all collapsed. And then that rock grew up into a giant mountain. Has anybody ever read that story in Daniel? That rock was Jesus Christ. Daniel 2.35. Actually, let's go ahead and turn there. You know, I, it would be better for you just to see a, see a glimpse of this than for me to just explain the entire thing. So Daniel chapter 2. Isaiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, if you're looking for it. Verse 35, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. When Daniel explained that dream to Nebuchadnezzar, the rock that is coming is Jesus Christ. He will cover the whole earth and never end. He is the rock of our salvation. In Matthew 16, Peter himself, the man who wrote this letter, he confesses to Jesus Christ that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. There are some people who think Jesus was calling Peter the rock that he would build the church on. Well, that's a misinterpretation because Peter clears that up right here in this, in this passage that we were at in, second, in, in, in chapter 2. Peter himself points out, no, 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 no. Jesus is the chief cornerstone that the church is built on. The rock that this church is built on is the profession of faith that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the rock, that profession of faith that will never die. 
Also in 1 Corinthians 10, we just read a piece of that this morning already. Paul teaches us there in this letter to the Corinthians that everything that was going on with Moses leading the children of Israel out of bondage of Egypt is a picture of our salvation. We who were dead to sin, enslaved to sin, when we find Jesus Christ, are led out of that into, an, into freedom. And during their, their wilderness journey, there was a point in time there where the Israelites were complaining, they were, they were mumbling, they wanted water. And God told Moses to speak to the rock and he would pour forth water out of the rock. If you remember that story in the Old Testament, Moses disobeyed God, his clear command, and I don't really know all the reasons why, but we've all been there before where we want to do it slightly our way. We want to put a modification spin on it. And Moses, I guess, just thought it would be better for him to strike the rock instead, not knowing what God was really teaching in that situation. So Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. Now, out of God's graciousness, he still gave water because that's the kind of God he is. Even when we mess up and completely blow it and do the opposite of what he told us to do, he still gives grace. But that rock was Christ. And that was a picture of the life, the living water that comes from Jesus Christ. We have to see in Scripture that all throughout the Old Testament, it's pointing to us this truth that God is sovereign. He is overall. And that at the same time, he is gracious and he's loving and he's providing a way. That's the same God we have today. No one else is like that. No one else is that forgiving. Someone else, you hit them instead of speak to them. Do you think they're just going to overflow with grace? That's not the way people work. That's not the way we even treat ourselves. I mean, you can be at the top of the mountain. You can be the captain of the soccer team one season and the next season because you have poor form and you're terrible. Everybody's booing you out of town. You can mess up on a public stage and get immediately canceled in this cruel world. Cruel, cruel world. People are nasty to people in this world. People are brutal on themselves for not measuring up to expectations that is put on them by a relentless, overbearing culture. But that's not the way God operates. He gives grace. He provides a way. And we don't want to live that life. I don't want you to be owned by, by your own passions, by a sport or by entertainment, or the never-ending, relentless career climb. There's a lot of pressure in all of that. You were made to be a people of his own possession. That's what you were created for. And there's so much rest and hope and peace with him and him alone. His burden is easy and his yoke is light. Not because life gets easier when you come to Jesus, but because he carries you through that. He carries you to your fullest potential. So according to this passage today, there are two people in this world. It's very clearly spelled out in verse 6. There's people of his own possession, those who believe him, verse 6, who will not be put to shame. And then there's people who do not believe. If you're here today and you do not believe in Jesus, I, I beg you and I urge you to repent and to believe in Jesus. The honor is for those who believe. You are the chosen sojourners. 
But for those who do not believe, they have rejected the living stone. And Jesus is now a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The living stone was rejected by the builders, the religious leaders of the day. They called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, a blasphemer. And to this day, the religion of Judaism has still rejected Jesus Christ. They are still waiting for the Messiah who has already came. Even now, the cross is a stumbling block because they look at the cross as a curse. He became a rock of offense to them. And there are countless people, young and old, Jew and Gentile, who look at Jesus and they are offended. Maybe they distort Jesus and they craft him into their own image so they're not as angry about it. But when they look at the true Jesus as revealed in Scripture, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, they don't like that. That exclusive Jesus is not popular. And as soon as you cut past the surface, and it's not sweet little baby Jesus anymore, he's the king who's coming again on a white horse with the rod in one hand and and wielding the sword of judgment in the other. When you talk about that Jesus, it's not very popular. It's problematic for people who want to be their own master of their own ship. It's problematic. It's not inclusive enough for my lifestyle. The truth is, everyone has a religion. Even if you don't want to admit it. You are a a human being with a spirit who worships something or someone. So your, your religion could be the woke gospel of equity, diversity, and inclusion. That could be your religion. Your religion could be a self-proclaimed identity and you've made yourself and your desires to be paramount. Your religion could be a man-made system of moral codes to ease your own conscience. There's a lot of religions like that. Your religion could be sport. It could be money. It could be a thousand different things. But everyone worships. Everyone is spiritual, whether you accept it or not. Just look at history. I mean, humans have always, throughout history, worshipped. And it's a joke to think that you're not spiritual. You can deny it, but even if you don't go to church to worship God, it's hardwired into your DNA. We know what else is hardwired into your DNA? To be a people of his own possession. To have a God who is greater than you, who is above you, who thinks beyond you and sees all and knows all. And this passage is telling us something that is amazing when you understand the truth. You were made to be like the living stone. You're like a little image of the great rock. He is God, and we are made in his image to be like him, but we are not him. We are are living, breathing statues of our creator showing his glory. And if you worship anyone or anything else, you aren't going to be complete. You are going to have a void. There's going to be something missing in your life. So please see what Peter says here. As you open your heart and come to him, you are now as living stones built up as a spiritual house. Verse 5. 
We know the church is comprised of individual believers, and I'm sure if you've been in church very long, you've heard the phrase like, the church is not a building, it's people. Absolutely, that's 100% true. But Peter is using an analogy here that you aren't just an individual person, but that the church is a building. It's, it's, it's an entire collective of people. It's a spiritual house, and you are a holy priesthood. This is something that is completely foreign to the old covenant. This is a new covenant thing. We'll be called a royal priesthood again, and we're going to spend more time on that next week. But for now, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Until you understand that you are not your own, but that you were bought with a price, you will never fully get what life is all about. You'll, just, you'll always be missing something. And you're going to be on that never-ending rat race of life that all those who don't know God are on. Romans 12 verse 1 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So you were created to live your life in a way that showcases the glory of God. And the glory of God is everything that is true about Him. Every one of His attributes is His glory. His truth, His justice, His mercy. And you could go on and on and on. When, when, when you live your life that way, you are showcasing the glory of God. Psalm 51, David is confessing his sin to God, and he says this. This is very important to get this aspect of, this aspect of your faith. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And I say that verse to point out to you that even back then, the heart is what matters. It's always been what matters. A heart that is broken by your own sin and failure and a heart that runs to God. The book of Hebrews chapter 13, it says, Let us then offer unto God the sacrifice of praise, even fruit of of our lips unto him. Hebrews 13, verse 5. So the spiritual sacrifices that we offer God are our praises unto him and coming before him with a broken and a contrite heart. As priests, we have been given access to God to go to directly to him through Jesus Christ. Before Jesus became our intercessor and chose us and adopted us, we had no access to God. Our relationship with Him was broken. And back in the Old Testament, only the priests could offer those sacrifices. That was the whole point of the priesthood. They were the intercessory humans, like we touched on last week. But in Christ, you are living stones, and if you know Jesus as your personal Savior, you are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, in all of this, you can't miss the second point today. And these last two points are very quick. But underlying all of this, point two is, well, open your heart to Christ. And number two, watch him do the rest. It's really that simple. There's not much left to be said. You look at verse five again. Are being built up. Do you see the tense there? It's a passive plural. 
God is talking about what he's doing in, in, this, in his chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. And you can't miss that all you do is come. All you do is come, and he does the rest. We've been, we, we've been singing a song about that. It's, it's nice to be adopted into the family and filled with the Spirit and empowered to become the truest version of yourself. Now, we've already talked about how Peter uses a heavy dose of the Old Testament to bring his point home. In verse 6, he's proof-texting his claim here. But he's telling us all that you are different. You, you, are, you are not the person you used to be. You're special. And he's backing that up with the Old Testament. And this is where it all comes full circle to, uh, for all of us who are suffering in the present. For, for all of you who are feeling the effects of the world that lives for itself, and you're in a daily battle between the flesh and fighting the world system that has rejected God and propped up all these false little g-gods, as you, as you are mentally battling for your own identity and navigating through all the lies and the empty promises of the world, open your heart to Christ and watch Him do it all. You aren't like the rest of the world who stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That's not you anymore. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Worship team, you can come up right here. I think Peter's point in all of this can really be summed up in a personal question that I'm going to ask you. Who possesses you? Who owns you? Have you submitted to the will of the Father? Or are you owned by something else? Maybe it's even a good passion that's a gift from, from the giver of all good gifts. I have, I have seen people be owned by their own father and mother. I mean, they love their own, they, they love their mom, they love their dad. And they live their entire life trying to please them. And many times, just like all human beings, the mother or the father, they're human and they don't love the way they, sh they should love. They don't, they don't love the way God the Father loves. And you can get really caught up into just trying to please mom or dad to the point that you were never truly owned by God. I've seen people be possessed and owned by their own kids. They want to give their kids the best, and that is a good desire. But his calling on your life is a lot higher and grander than you're giving him credit for. You were to raise up your kids, to teach your kids about God, and to send them out into this world to be on mission for God. His calling on your life is so huge. But you have to see that you are a people of His possession. Jesus bought you with, with the sacrifice and, and, and the shedding of His own blood. 
Maybe you're owned by something else. Are you, are you owned by your own sexual identity? There's a pervading lie out there that says, if you're uncomfortable with your body, then you need to, you need to transition into something else. It is so destructive. It's never the answer. It only creates more chaos and confusion in the end. Where is your heart? Are you possessed by God in the fact that you've, wheel, you've yielded over to Him and you've, and you've given your will to Him? Or is your heart somewhere else? Which person are you? Do you believe in God or do you believe in yourself? It's really what it comes down to. Believe in Jesus and you will not be put to shame. Would you stand up this morning? Those of you who, who do not believe and disobey his word, God is calling you to repent, to turn from that sin and turn to him. Does God possess your heart or is your heart somewhere else? And this is the final point. There's only one thing left. Point three, it's really that simple. We've, we've said all this. Open your heart to Christ, allow him to do the rest, and embrace your true identity. If you're in Christ, if you know Jesus and he's, he's forgiven you of your sin and you've confessed that to him, whether you feel like it or not, you are now a child of the king. In, second P, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. reach out to us at info at doxaupstate.church. You are loved.